Thursday, November the 7th, 1963. The Beatles arrive in Dublin for two shows at the Adelphi Cinema. The manager of the Adelphi at the time was Harry Lush. There were four young fellas, uh, beautiful looking lads, very good looking, very tame, very homely, very quiet. They would do anything for anything you asked them to do, they would do it. Whether they do with that now, if you gave them an order now, it might be a different matter. But if you told them that time to get on the stage and stand in your, on your head, they'd do it for you. But they were lovely fellas. My impression of them was not at all favourable. Frank Hall, who interviewed the Beatles for RTE television. I thought they were a collection of young pups. That's the truth. I'll tell you, because like in my, in my career on the Evening Herald, I, I met a lot of musicians, and very excellent musicians. I mean, people of real stature, you know. And they all behaved like, like sensible adult people, civilly and politely, and, you know, and would, would actually talk. But these fellows wouldn't talk. They were like a collection of monkeys scratching their backsides and sort of chattering to one another rather than to me, you know. It was rather disconcerting. I'd never actually come across anything quite like it in my life. And I remember saying to myself, these young pups will not go far. But their influence had already gone as far as Kells County Meath, where they had a profound effect on certain teenagers who were soon to make their own mark in show business. Horselips drummer Eamon Carr and actor John Olohan. The whole Beatle mania thing happened with such force in Kells, but only about four of us knew about it. <laughs> and it just took over our whole lives. And Eamon Carr was one of the fellas that had that I was involved with at the time. And we just lived and breathed Beatles. And uh, when I heard about coming to Dublin, uh, I'm, I just wanted to go there. And Eamon was away at school, and it was, there was a sort of a one-upmanship in it as well, because I, I, I knew Eamon couldn't see it, see the concert. So I said, well, I'm going to get a ticket if it kills me. So my Auntie Betty, who worked in Cleary's, she was a buyer in Cleary's, she sent me a ticket for 15 shillings for the front row of the Adelphi Cinema. Now, I can't tell you what it was like. It was just like, I mean, it was like as if Jesus had come down from heaven with this, this wonderful gift. And I can't tell you the excitement of just going to it. It was just incredible. I mean, it was just beyond belief. The actor Donald McCann was a young reporter at the time. I was in the evening press, getting ready to go home, having done my copy boy duties for the day, and uh, hoping in a way that I might be able to get a ticket somewhere, get to see the Beatles, but uh, somebody rang in sick who was to go to the Beatles press conference to do the atmosphere piece. I believe since it, I, I've learned since that that's what you call it, or the colour piece, and the person couldn't go, and I sort of had been spend, spending a lot of time ingratiating myself with Sean McCann, the features editor, and I sort of nudged an idea at him or a wink or something like that, and he suggested, "What about Donald?" You know, and uh, I got the great compliment from the late Connor News O'Brien. Uh, the editor, he's too much fucking imagination. 
So they looked around to try to get a few more people and they couldn't, so I finally was given the Club Orange bottle cap to wear on my lapel, which was the thing that opened the door into the press conference. Journalist Ken Stewart. What I remember is being in the Gresham Hotel that morning and um, being in the ballroom there and not talking to the Beatles because I never got that near to them. I was a few feet away and there were very few people around at the time, but I think they were otherwise occupied. They were kind of clowning around uh, a TV camera setup. And I did notice as well uh, Jean Tierney, the American actress, who was sitting outside very quietly on a chair in the lobby with nobody noticing her at all because when the Beatles were there, uh, nobody noticed anybody else but the Beatles. It was like the fall of the Bastille or something. There was mass hysteria. It was perfectly dreadful. And I do remember a, a, a guard, a superintendent, who was put to his pin of his collar, the poor man. He told us to get off the street or he'd, he'd have us up for disturbing the peace. So we had to retire in good order inside the Adelphi, you see. So we formed ourselves into a sort of a, a raiding party, you see. Rushed out, you see, and grabbed all these girls as fast as we could and took them in, threw them inside into the Adelphi, you see, and lined them up, you see, and asked them, you see, what did they think about the Beatles? Said, well, of course, I mean, they would turn your stomach the way these they were going on. You know, oh, that was lovely, oh, Rico, and this and that. Oh, the, so glad it was awful to listen to them, you know. Now, what time did you take up your position here today? A bit of quarter past one. Yeah, and what... Is it about these fellas that, that brings you out at that hour of the day? Oh, no, they're just gorgeous. They're what? They're gorgeous. <laughs> well, now, be a bit more explicit. I mean, what is it? Is it the singing or the, the hair or what? The singing and the hair and the jacket. Uh, is, and is that all? No, everything. I don't know. It's the way they sing and everything. Well, what about you? I like the way they sing. The way they sing? What way do they sing? I've never heard them. Give a great beat. Uh, what like what? I mean, give us a sort of an like, idea. Like, do you love me? Or, like um, what? She loves you. Where is that? She loves you. Yeah. Yeah. She loves you. Yeah. And, they, and you love them. Yes. Oh. <laughs> you do. You do. What about you, ladies? Yeah, I just like them. You just like uh, them. Yeah. You're, not, you're not mad about them. No, I'm not mad about. Oh, you have no right to be here at all. Oh, then I like them. Then I'm mad about them. But I finally came to the one at the end. You see. Very respectable-looking girl. I wondered what she was doing with this crowd of mollies, you know. And what about you? I don't like them. You do? Well, thank no. goodness for that. Well, what are you doing here? We're getting tickets for next week for Helen Shapiro. Oh. The head cleaner at the Adelphi, Ted Dennis. We had to keep the, all the front doors locked because, uh, well, anyone tried to get in. However, um, the next thing was that I appeared next to me was Frank Hall, the RTE man. And uh, he asked me, had he uh, got a load of a stepladder? I forget now if... Um, the if, if uh, they had a cameraman with him, and well, he asked me, "Could he get a small stepladder?" I said, "Yes." So he said, "Because I want to find out." He says, "What way are they going to get him through that crowd?" And uh, 
He said, uh, he said, you know, he says, I don't know how they can manage it because the, the whole place was choked. And uh, anyway, I got the stepladder and he looked and he says, my God, he says, this is unbelievable. There, which it was. I'd never seen nothing like it. I can't recall what I would have wanted with the stepladder. The only two purposes I can think either Jackie Merriam and the cameraman wanted to stand upon it, or I might have, I might have had a wild notion if I could persuade them to stand under it, that I might hang them from it. The world is treating me bad, misery. Joe Murta was the boiler man at the Adelphi, but he also dealt with the programmes for the show. They came into the Adelphi and I happened to be on duty in the vestibule. And walked over and I said, I know, listen lads, I know all about you fellas. I know all about you. It's the Beatles, the Tavern, Liverpool. Ah, says they to me. You know us. I says, of course I do. And says, well, before you're getting into that theatre at all, says I, I want four signatures there. I want four pictures of you and one of the four of you. Now, I says, oh, would you give me that? I thought to say, hey, come on. It'd be our pleasure. And I got, it was terrible. I had five pictures of them. I forget the names now at the moment. But I, I could remember them if I have to go back. There were hard tickets anyway. And John Lennon. Was John one. was one, that's right. Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney was two, yeah. that's right. George, George Harrison. George Harrison, actually, you know them better than me. And uh, the drummer and, was Ringo Starr. The drummer, Star. Ringo Starr. That's quite correct. Mm. That's quite correct. So, anyway, they were damn decent. I said to them, they're for my daughter now, and I want to thank you very much. I didn't expect them of you. It's a pleasure. You're the first signature of us in Ireland. Well, says I will boast about that. Between the two shows at 6.30 and 9 o'clock, there was a press conference in an upstairs room in the Adelphi. Donald McCann. Well, that's it. I mean, I went straight from the office to that, and with, with uh, printer's ink, which they still use then, and, and uh, around my face. I was kind of dirty. Lennon, for instance, didn't uh, believe for a moment that I was a journalist uh, because I asked him, did he believe in God? Well, he didn't reply immediately. He conferred with Alan Owen, who was then with them writing the, the screenplay or getting preparing the screenplay for A Hard Day's Night. Uh, he came back then and he said... I have certain reservations. There were a lot of girls, young people on, on Abbey Street, and they knew that they were in the Adelphi, and they knew they were up somewhere because the w curtains were drawn, you know. And I, I found it very satisfying to go over and sort of tweak the curtain every so often. It was this enormous scream would come because they thought they had got a glimpse of one of the Fab Four, and that always was a bit of the, the dull one, you know, acting the maggot. Ted Dennis, the head cleaner, had other duties on the day of a live show. Part of my duty was 
that in between the shows, all these, uh, well, at least the principal stars of the show, uh, they had the, a, a private room. And uh, I used to, my job was to see that they required any refreshment, anything at all. And I used to go up, no matter who they were, like that. And uh, then I'd contact the cafe and uh, tell them such a, everyone, such a thing, such a thing. Then, of course, with the Beatles, I went up and uh, told them I required anything. And uh, I forget now what they actually wanted. I didn't think, they didn't want much anyway. And uh, oh, I had a nice little chat there. I'll tell you who I liked very much. Paul McCartney. Oh, he was a lovely chap. Very pleasant. Oh, very pleasant chap. I couldn't speak too highly of him. But Lennon was a kind of an aloof person. They're very hard. He just looked listening and that. And then George, he was a very nice man also. There, but very quiet, but a lovely person. But I hadn't much time for uh, Ringy Starr. Oh, I had no time. He was a rough kind of a person. And then the chatting, he'd join in and that, chime in and that. John Kyo, lead singer and piano player with the Caravels, soon to be known as the Green Beats. It was foggy and it was cold and I'll never forget it. I mean, the excitement was unbelievable because, uh, I mean, this... They were obviously a super group and we'd seen other bands. I, rem- I remember going to the Theatre Royal to see um, Marty Wilde and the Wildcats and bands like that, you know, but it was sort of all falling away. And funny, it always struck me that it was a shame. The Royal closed just before the Beatle boom and it was a shame because they could, the biggest auditorium, that it got everybody. But as it was, the, the Adelphi got them. And the Stones came shortly after that, but the Beatles was the big one for us. And I'll never forget Abbey Street. It was unbelievable people climbing over cars it was it was mayhem and I was blessed I had tickets I suppose I was about six rows back and the noise from the crowd was unbelievable but I was close enough to be able to hear them and this was the thing that struck me because I'd seen other acts and you know in the heat of the moment and all this mayhem a lot of the other acts could be a bit ropey but what struck me about the Beatles was they were not perfect. They were wonderful. I could hear each one of them. And they did everything right. They were very professional. They were very into their music. I mean, their, the performance was all there. But the big thing was they played absolutely correctly. And it was amazing. I Eventually, I had to end up standing on a, a seat because you couldn't see. Everybody was standing up and the noise was incredible. But I was close enough to hear them and it was fantastic. And I remember there was... Uh, an American comic. I can't remember his name, but I suspect he became a very big comic afterwards. The whole concert started, and there was this guy called um, Berry. Oh, Mike, Mike, Mike Berry? Was Dave. Frank. Frank, Frank Berry, is it? Frank Berry. Started up, and he was... Oh, he was a real bore. I mean, nobody wanted to hear him. I used to come out in front of the... Uh, the curtains and start telling jokes. I mean, he was just shouted at and booed and roared off and hissed and everything. I remember feeling so sorry for the guy because every time he came out, there were several other acts. There was the, a group called the Rhythm and Blues Quartet, which was a sort of a, a filler-in act, and they were quite good. But every time the poor guy appeared, they thought he was coming out to announce the Beatles, and he was trying to tell gags, and it was, and he was very, very funny. 
because the first guy that I'd ever heard risk the joke the first time I'd heard it, he tried something and didn't go down and he says full belt into the microphone that went down like a pork chop at a Jewish party and that was very sophisticated humour for the 1960s in Ireland and I remember that was the one gag I remember it was his riposte to a gag that died in death and it was incredible but every time he came out it was mayhem and then of course they came out you could hear dong 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 in behind the curtains and I mean everybody in that theatre knew what was going on behind and at the end boom 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 and that, that was Paul cheering his bass and he went, and that was George and jing, 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 it was John and there's the odd on the cymbals it was Ringo and the place went crazy it just really went crazy and your man started to say well now and he started to fill in time and and it, the more he delayed the more he delayed the more hy- hysterical the crowd got Eventually, he just say, he just shouted out the Beatles, and the whole place went dark, and a tiny pin spot hit the opening where the divide of the curtains were, where, where, where the where the curtains just came together, and the beginning of I saw her standing there started, and the whole introduction to that the curtains started to open and the pin spot got bigger and bigger and bigger and as the curtains got bigger <laughs> you could see figures oh my god it's the, it's the place went spare I mean just like standing roaring screaming dancing <laughs> people just went wild and then suddenly whang as, as soon as Paul said well she the whole lights came on the stage and it was just like I mean, the shock wave of that alone, you know, was enough to... I mean, it just went... It, the whole place was crazy. I went down, went home and washed myself and put on a clean shirt and uh, a button-down tie, a, a collar, I had one of those. I was a bit of a fan, you see. And I, I went down and came back in time to see them coming out of the first show, which was, I thought, the basis for it, and a very good kick-off for a piece. And uh, went into the show, then it was, that was, it was just extraordinary. It was... The height of excitement for me, and uh, the effect it was having on the predominantly very young, very female audience was uh, frightening. <laughs> well, it wasn't. I mean, it was very exciting. But, uh, I didn't quite understand why. Liz Crow was one of that very young, very female audience. I don't think that I was part of the mania thing I mean I, I we didn't get ourselves into such a state where you were going to collapse I mean girls were taken out on stretchers I mean they were just frenzied they were like you know rabid dogs or something I mean they were just frenzied and they were just there to see well I mean nobody was, we were there to hear but not really to hear we were there to look at Paul McCartney I'd like to carry on with a song which was on our first Capital album. We hope, we hope you enjoy the song. 
The song is called All My Loving. Close your eyes and I can see Paul introduced, he said he was going, they were going to do some songs off the new album. And I remember one incident. Pa Paul said, I'm going to sing um, Till There Was You. And there were two spotlights, I remember. And the two spotlights came onto Paul. And he started off, and the lights went down, and he sang Till There Was You. Of course, in the place, I mean, you could barely hear it. Because it was a soft number, but I mean, <laughs> there was this constant. At this stage, there was this constant scream, and uh, at the end of "Till There Was You," the fellow who was operating the spot, the stage left spot, kept it on Paul. So the two spots were on Paul, and John had to do the next introduction, and they were signalling to your man to move the spot over to John and the message wasn't getting through at all so John Lennon danced across the stage went into Paul's double spot made a, a kind of a smiling gesture up to your man in the, in the, who was working the spot and danced out of Paul's spot with his spot on him now that little piece of improvisation tore the place asunder because it showed that, well, that they were able to make mistakes, you know, they made mistakes, but that they fixed it with such, you know, panache and such, you know, expertise and they still entertained the crowd while they were doing it. Oh, it was just, it just, they went, the crowd went crazy at this. I was very excited and the lighting was good and jokey, that was very funny, you know, you got a, the wrong guy, the spot. More, yeah, on the wrong one, and they would point to the other one, you know, and they end up on Ringo, who wasn't singing at all. Mags Graham was a 16 year old Beatles groupie who not only managed to get tickets for both shows, but actually met the Fab Four. I did. They really had become um, something bigger than life to me, and that's why I would like to think these years, uh, in, in these later years of my life, I understand when teenagers go ape about something, because I remember clearly being a teenager. And as far as I was concerned, they were my life, particularly Paul McCartney, I must admit. Um, John Lennon, I was beginning to be old enough to realise was somebody very special, but I wanted to meet them. So on the actual day, and I do think it was an awful wet day, and the amount of money we had to pay to get tickets to both shows meant, you know, scrimping and scraving and begging. But I decided, no, I wanted to actually meet them. And I knew that there was a press conference. So I actually went, bold as brass, blue jeans, black pole neck sweater. We all wore this uniform and knocked at the side door of the Adelphi for the press conference and said, and I mean, I was barely 16 and wouldn't have been the kind of youngster who looked 18 when she was 16 at all. Makeup was minimal and all that kind of thing. And said, I was a junior reporter for the National Syndicate of Papers. And they wanted the young people's point of view. And my God, they let me in. So up I went, I went into a room. I remember it was quite a small room, not a glamorous room at all. Um, 25, 30 people there, and four of them were the Beatles. There was John and Paul, um, 
Ringo and maybe not George Harrison. I don't remember, but I must admit I didn't mind very much because he was not top of my list. Went over to Paul McCartney, told him the lie. He bought the lie and said, oh, right, you know, and the lovely Liverpool accent. Um, and of course, I had been to the cavern um, with a group that I, I was very involved in at the time. And um, I instantly kind of, you know, became 16 again. And I went all week in the knees and I said, no, actually, I just adore you and I love you. And I'm not a junior reporter at all. And he talked to me for about 10 minutes. And I realise now he was almost as young as I was. I suppose he was, what, 18 or 19 or 20. I think he's in his late 40s now, as distinct from me in my mid-40s. But he was very interested. It was almost as if it had happened too fast for them. And he was quite keen to talk to somebody who was also still a kid. Um, he asked me what my favourite song was. I told him. I told him where I was sitting. And I told him I was going to both shows, which I think really impressed him. And he actually, later in the evening, actually dedicated the song to me. And it was Taylor is You. There were bells on a hill But I never heard them ring No, I never heard them at all Taylor was you the journalist, Aina Brophy. I went with uh, uh, my friend, uh, Mog, Morris O'Hearn. Um, he came along to the second... No, he came along to the first show, that was it. And he enjoyed it so much as well that he was dying to get into the second one. And, of course, he hadn't got a pass because he, he'd just gone along as a paying customer. In, after the first show, we went out and I met outside uh, um, Aina Brophy, who was uh, a close friend at the time. And uh, he was covering the concert for something like the Irish... Irish women's, Irish tailor and cutter or something. Uh, but he had managed to wangle himself a press pass in. And they had little badges. All the press people had little badges uh, that they'd bought in Eason's. And they had, there were white badges with blue splodges that said steward or uh, something like that on them. So I borrowed Anna's and fabricated one of my own from a, a cigarette packet, uh, wrapping it around a penny and stuck it uh, with chewing gum onto my lapel. And so I stood with all the press bods uh, during the second concert and every so often some uh, heavy from security would run up and down checking all the, the lapel badges and I passed muster in the dark but come the interval before the Beatles um, uh, I knew that the game was up so I headed for the toilet and closed the door and uh, after about five minutes I was sitting there waiting for some noise that will tell me that the lights have gone down again I heard a heavy fist on the door saying what's in there I said press press and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to the toilet. And I could tell he was still there, so I thought I'm going to have to make some sort of convincing noise. So I fished around my pocket, and all I could find were five six-inch nails. And I dropped them one by one into the toilet bowl, uttering awful sort of constipated groans as I did so. And they went splash clank <laughs> into the bottom of the bowl. But I still got away with it. Uh, and then came out. The Beatles did exactly the same thing, for all I could tell. It was a complete formula. Um, I wasn't a bit impressed. I turned into a rabid Beatles fan, but I still, my recollection of that concert is that it was an event that I'm glad I went to, but musically, it didn't happen at all. Lennon's body language was incredible. It was sort of legs astride and the guitar, the head sort of thrown back a bit and sort of re really sort of gave it right into the microphone. It was a sort of aggressive stance. And George Harrison had this prowl 
with the head down and he had his little sort of a funny sideways shuffle and he used to prowl with his head crouched all the time and McCartney had this little sort of walk where he'd walk back and forward all the time and Ringo with the famous head throw he'd sort of snap the head to the left or right when he'd hit the cymbals all of these things are graphically I can see them all I can virtually remember their entire programme it was a fantastic night wild You did have people fainting all over the place. You had people probably using parts of their lungs right down to the bottom of their guts that they'd never used before, even though in those days and you know, to some extent these days, a lot of young people smoked. People screamed themselves into oblivion. I mean, I can tell you this to my knowledge of our area, but also knowing and remembering a lot about young people then at our age, there were no drugs at all and there was no drink. But people were behaving as if they were, you know, dropping ecstasy all over the place. And they were our ecstasy. It was virtually the first album. That's what they did. They did almost the first album. And this was the great thing about it, because there were hits. That was the other thing. You were getting all hits, you know. But they did include Till There Was You. And they did um, uh, um, Roll Over Beethoven, the Chuck Perry. From the moment I heard the Beatles, I said, that's the sort of band we are, you know. They had piano, two guitars, and like Lennon played the piano, or sometimes two guitars and bass and drums, and sometimes they'd add on a piano, or sometimes it'd be piano, guitar, bass and drums. It was the same set as up, up as us. There was no sort of Cliff Richard thing. There was no echoey guitars. We didn't use echo. We used very sort of hard, dry, electric guitars and honky piano. And it just seemed as if, as if we knew them. And as if we were a band that had grown up with them when we were lads had come out of school because it, it, it was remarkable. But it just seemed to be that for some reason they were thinking the same thing. After the second show, there was the problem of how to evacuate the Beatles from the Adelphi. A plan to spirit them away in an evening herald van was hatched. Ted Dennis. Now, usually at the end of these shows, the curtains, the tabs had come over, be brought over and... Uh, that they'd open again, you know, for the name call, you know, the usual there. So anyway, there's all arranged that they'd finish on a certain number. And as soon as the tabs come over on the number, they'd shoot through the doors into the van immediately. You know, it's all arranged that way. And I don't, I thought, didn't thought, I don't know how they're going to do it, but anyway, that was the arrangement. So uh, the, the particular number ended... The curtains closed, that was that, and of course the audience, when they hadn't even moved from their seats, which was very unusual, and thinking, of course, that they give me a little bit more of a programme. And the tabs come over anyway, and that was quietness and quietness. And waiting for the tabs to open again. I was too, there, although I was in the plan, I was in, I was waiting to see, 
And the next minute, the door opened behind me, and Christy Ward, who was uh, uh, on his post, was on the, the staircase leading to the dressing rooms and, and to the stage. That was his duty. He come and he said to me, Ted, are you gone? He says, are you joking? No, oh, gosh, that's fantastic there. And that's the way it ended up there, without any bother at all. It was absolutely fabulous. I, I couldn't believe it. And the, the audience were there, they were dumbfounded. John Healy was a reporter with independent newspapers. I was working that night in the office, and I remember opening the, the uh, windows and looking out onto Middle Abbey Street. And Middle Abbey Street was just a mass of people cheering and shouting and trying to call in for the Beatles. And uh, we realised at that stage that there was no way the Beatles could get get out after the performance. So um, there was a, a chap writing for the Evening Herald at the time. He's called Uncle Bill, Bill, Bill Ratcliffe. And Bill Ratcliffe apparently was good friends with Harry Lush, the manager. And they organised a sort of a, an undercover uh, uh, sort of way of getting the the, um, the boys, the four little lads, out. And they were only little lads, you know. And they got them out the back way. They backed up um, an Evening Herald van, opened the two back doors, and even there, there's a little laneway linking Princess Street, which is at the back of the Adelphi, and Middle Abbey Street. And even then, there were streams of people coming up. But... They didn't realise what was happening, that the Beatles actually were being smuggled out. So uh, I, I came down to sort of see the, the um, operation and uh, I got into the van because I wanted to write a story about this, how, how, the, how we managed to get, how the Evening Herald managed to get the, the Beatles to safety. So I got into the van, I helped the, the four lads into the van and the driver had the van running. The back of it was faced to the, the Adelphi. Somebody closed the doors and tapped the side and off we went. So it was, it was really like an ambulance, you know, going up straight up towards the Gresham Hotel. And I was amazed at the four fellows, you know, that they could cause such mayhem inside in the, in the theatre. And there were four frightened, small, thin boys with little tunic um, tunics on them with, with, with kind of Mao uh, collars and they were white as the sheets I think they were scared because when they realised they, what they had to go through to get back to their hotel with the Russian hotel so we drove up um, past the GPO into uh, O'Connell Street and uh, they said very little they were, they were sort of just sitting there, I think they were shaken, and uh, they did say they told me that the concert was great, and they they loved the crowd, and uh, we pulled up then at the the door of the the Gresham, and went in. And that time in the Gresham, I think still there, you have uh, you had um, a lounge where people were sitting drinking coffee and that. So the four, the five of us, the four Beatles and myself, walked through the lounge, hardly raised a head. We just walked, you know, the, the, uh, I don't think people realised who they were at the time. And uh, we went as far as the lift, shook hands with me, thanked me for rescuing them from the crowd, and they went up, off up to bed. 
after the concert, the crowd all left and poured into the foyer and out onto the street. But the crowd for the second show were already in the street and also people who had come down to see could they see the Beatles, who hadn't got tickets. And the crowd from the first show couldn't get out. Now, it could I mean, it has a recipe for disaster, absolute disaster. So there was this surge of people to get out of the cinema and a surge of people trying to get into the cinema. So there was kind of deadlock. And this kind of hysteria started to build up. And I remember sensing, this is trouble, there's, there's danger, I'm going to have to get out of this. So I very slowly wheedled my way out into the street, out onto the curb, and I got down, crouched down, and I looked and I could see a straight line from the Adelphi up to O'Connell Street. And it was where the path, where the curb was, because there was either people on the path or people on the road, but there was nobody on both if you know what I mean. So I put one foot on the curb and one foot one foot on the path and one foot on the road and headed for O'Connell Street. And that's the way I got out of that that crowd. But at that stage, it was getting pretty nasty and there was, you know, a lot of pushing and, you know, screaming and shouting and there was talk of cars. You know, there were cars being, you know, um, bounced and, you know, in grave danger of being overturned. And... Um, then I, I went out and collected my bags. I remember it in Blackrock. And when I came back in on the bus to get me half ten bus, it was like something out of a a dream or like a um, a war zone because there were screams coming from... It was dark at this stage. And I got off the bus at the Metropole, the old Metropole, where the Metropole was, the number, the number eight, where it used to stop. And there were... Suddenly I looked across O'Connell Bridge... And about, it what seemed to me, I, there must have been about 200 people were running down the middle of the street. And I got the fright of my life. And they were run. they seemed to be running, you know, I figured out that they were running from the Shelburne Hotel down to the Gresham. And that they had heard at the Shelburne that they were actually in the Gresham. And it was just like hysterical running. Like young fellas and young ones and... You know, it was just kind of crazy. So I um, stood to one side and let the pa uh, crowd pass. And I crossed the road and down Abbey Street towards Bosaurus. And as I was about where, you know, the Abbey Theatre is now, another crowd passed me by, rounded the corner and passed me by, all kind of hysterical, running to in the direction of the um, of the Gresham Hotel. And I, it was just, like, really scary. And so I hightailed it down to Bosaurus and, and got onto my bus. But, I mean, the, the, the papers the, the following morning, you know, that's when I found out what, what actually happened. I mean, they, there was a riot in, in Dublin. I mean, they overturned cars and they burnt them out and they, they wrecked the place, I believe, altogether. But um, oh, it was a great day. <laughs> I wouldn't have missed it for all the world. Great day. <laughs> Twist so fine, twist so fine. Come on and twist it in the 
I have no idea about the next day. And we were stone cold sober 16 year olds. I have no memory after they finally left the stage. I can't remember what it was like in school the next day. I just remember leaving with my friend Liz. I can't, I can't tell you how we got home. And that is the truth.